Welcome to another limited edition series from Gate Audio Productions. In this four-part podcast, we're bringing to you four conversations with expert panelists from our 2018 Behavioral Approaches for Diversity Conference, affectionately known as the BAD Conference. In these conversations, you'll hear new solutions from the behavioral sciences for making real progress on diversity and inclusion. The BAD Conference was co-hosted with the Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman Research Center, or BEAR, and we focused on the childhood roots of inequality, going beyond hashtags towards real change, bringing masculinity into the conversation, and how to move the needle on diversity. Gate Audio is produced by the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, or Gate as we call it, and I'm Sarah Kaplan, Gate's director. Our goal is to engage current and future leaders in rich conversations about inequalities in our society and how we might address them. And this conference and these conversations are part of that effort. Hundreds of people joined us at that conference, and now we're super pleased to bring it to the Gate Audio listening audience. As usual, if you want more information on Gate, go to gendereconomy.org. And now, on to the show. So we're moving right along to our next panel, which is beyond the hashtag, moving toward real change. We thought about this panel, admittedly, it was a little bit reactionary. So we were thinking about all of the fads that come and go that we all see in the diversity world and really feeling a little bit frustrated about why none of those have really helped us to make long lasting change. We see little increments of change, but nothing really huge. Um, And so the people who are on this panel up here are some of the best minds thinking about and working toward true progress. So we're very happy to have them up on stage today. So once again, I'll introduce our moderator, and our moderator will introduce the panel. So our moderator is Dr. Median Andrade. Median is professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Toronto, as well as Vice Dean Faculty Affairs and Equity. Um, we thought that Median would be a real natural to moderate this panel because of all of the work that she's done as a champion for diversity and inclusion here at U of T. So she's worked for years um, spreading the message of how bias can affect the assessment of women, people of color, other underrepresented groups in academia and leadership roles, and it's not even her research area. Her real research area is like spider sex, <laughs> like literally, like made suction in spiders. So this, she really believes deeply in this. Um, so moving towards real change is something that she's enacted in her life. So I think this is, she's really well suited to this panel. So thanks, Median. Thank you so much, Sonia. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this panel, moving beyond the hashtag, moving towards real change. Um, We are here today to continue this conversation and to really engage you and challenge you to think seriously about how we, uh, as individuals who understand these issues, can actually operationalize our understanding of behavioral change in the service of diversity. Now, I've been engaging people in these conversations for about the last eight years, so I did delve into the social science literature enough to act as a knowledge translator um, and to try to convince people that bias is a thing and that it can affect systematically what our organizations look like and how they function. So what I've found is that when you talk about diversity and the need for systematic change, you often start by looking at the data, right? Walking through representation data uh, and then talking about what uh, we think might underlie some of the biases we see in representation. And this is underrepresentation of women, of people of color, of indigenous people, of people with disabilities, of people from the LGBTQ communities. So, and this is in, in just about every sector, right? Politics, uh, business, the academy, everywhere we look, we see these underrepresentations. And in most cases, when you look at the data over time, you see a glacially slow change. And in some cases, stagnation, and in some cases, retrenchment. It's a serious problem. And in fact, some of you who were around for the Nita Hill hearings may be feeling that even though we had a hashtag movement about harassment and about violence, that we haven't actually gone all that far because the responses to what's going on right now, some of them sound a lot like what we heard during the Anita Hill hearings. So the data, when you show people the data, they start out, you show them a mirror and you say, look at what I see. And they start out with disbelief. And gradually as the data accumulates, that shifts into horror and it shifts into outrage for at least a subset of the people you're showing the data to. But that's not enough, and that's what we mean by beyond the hashtag. The outrage, which now is often manifest as social media storms, 
is manifest as uh, the Me Too movement, for example, sometimes it can cross lines and have an effect, like we've seen recently. But quite often it doesn't. And that's because it's just not enough. So being outraged is not the same as taking action. And we need to take action to work on this problem because it will be work. And the problem is, how do we move from education and outrage to actually understanding how bias works and leveraging our vast academic understanding of how to change behaviors in a positive way to make a systemic change? And that's what this panel is about. So in this panel, we focus on the critical importance of individuals not just recognizing and understanding the issues, but thinking about ways to move from recognition to developing strategies for changing individual behaviors and to produce those systematic shifts that we know we need if we want to shift those numbers and make the data a little less oppressive. So our panelists today will challenge us to move from understanding to action. This means considering the way in which you think about yourself and whether you can accept that initial mirror about whether or not bias might reside in your own behavior. This means considering how education, just knowing that bias exists, may not be enough to change behavior. And this means thinking about how what we know about behavior and altering behavioral patterns can actually be harnessed to move things in the direction that would lead to positive change. So I'm pleased today to be joined by our panelists. I'm actually privileged to be on the same stage with these folks. Mr. Eric Singler, Professor Katie Milkman, and Professor Dolly Chug, who will be our first speaker today. They'll start with about a five-minute address each, and then we'll be taking questions and discussion from the audience. So we'll start with Professor Chug, who earned her MBA and PhD in organizational behavior and social psychology from Harvard, worked in the business world for a number of firms such as Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, prior to joining New York University's Stern School of Business, where she's now an associate professor in the management and organizations department. Professor Chug teaches about leadership, management, and negotiations in Stern's full-time MBA program and the NYU Prison Education Program. Her research focuses on the psychology of good people, particularly unintentional forms of unethical behavior such as unconscious bias. She's published in the top managerial and academic journals, and her work is widely cited in the academic, professional, and popular press. In 2014, she was named one of the top 100 most influential people in business ethics by Ethisphere magazine. Professor Chug's first book, entitled The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, was published this month by HarperCollins and I believe is available in the bookstore. Professor Chug. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I want to start with a story. So a friend of mine told me this story. She took a taxi to the airport and she ended up striking up a conversation with the taxi driver. And at the end, when he dropped her off, he said to her, I can just tell you're a good person. And when she told me this story, she was blown away by his words. She said, I can't believe how good it made me feel that a total stranger thought I was a good person. And what struck me about that is that she's not alone. Um, those of us who study social science of people, I study the psychology of good people, the research is pretty clear in our field that most of us do care about our moral identity. We care about feeling like a good person and being seen as a good person, even if, like my definition of a good person may be different than your definition and the taxi driver's definition. We may have different definitions, but we care about this particular identity that we hold. And so, what I'm interested in is what is that commitment, that attachment we have to that good person identity? Is that attachment actually holding us back from being better people? Is our attachment to being a good person scientifically impossible to meet? Because it's a very, very tight corner. In that tight corner of being a good person, it's either or. Either you are a sexist or you're not. Either you are a racist or you're not. Either you are a homophobe or you're not, et cetera, et cetera. And in that tight corner where it's a choice, you either are or you're not, about an identity we care deeply about, taxi driver, total stranger, we have no choice 
in the way the human mind works, but to cling to the, this belief that I am a good person. And so when we have all sorts of data from our experience and from um, social scientists that point to the fact that unconscious bias exists, that much of the mental processes of our mind take place outside of our awareness, within any given moment, that was a snap, I do better with the right hand, snap. Um, within any given moment, 11 million bits of information are flowing into our mind right now and only 40 of them are being processed by you consciously. 11 million outside of awareness, 40 within conscious awareness, that the mind will take shortcuts. That's the core of bounded rationality, work many of you know. And it extends itself into this work on bounded ethicality. The same mind that can be irrational in what cereal it chooses at the grocery store, what product it launches in the boardroom, it's the same mind deciding who to hire, whose advice to trust, and what joke to tell. So my proposition is that we let go of our attachment to being good people, and that we instead embrace the idea of being goodish people. <laughs> goodish people still make mistakes, but we own them when we do. We learn from them when we do. We raise the red flag, as Iris described, when we do. We get better at noticing it ourselves and not just being called out on it by other people. We treat issues of diversity, inclusion, ethics, bias, just like we treat other areas in our lives. If we wanna be better at accounting, we take a course in accounting. When we become new parents, if we become new parents, we often read a book about how to be a parent. In this as well, especially in a topic that's changing as quickly in the world as technology, ethics, diversity, inclusion, bias, when our knowledge base is changing that quickly, can't we approach it in the same way as something that we can get better at? And that is what goodish people do. Thank you so much. I'll be here next from Professor Katie Milkman. Uh, Professor Milkman earned her PhD from Harvard University's Joint Program in Computer Science and Business, and currently holds the Evan C. Thompson Endowed Term Chair for Excellence in Teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also co-directs the Behavioral Change for Good initiative. An award-winning behavioral economist and expert on behavior change, she's a professor of operations, information, and decisions at the Wharton School at UPenn, with a secondary appointment at the Perlman School of Medicine. Professor Milkman has, won numerous, uh, has numerous publications in leading journals and was named one of the world's top 40 business school professors under 40 by Poets and Quants. Professor Milkman has advised the Department of Defense, Google, and the American Red Cross and writes about behavioral economics regularly for the Washington Post. Professor Milkman. Thank you. Um, I'm inspired by Dolly to start with a story, though instead of giving you something as concrete as a philosophy, I'll use it to talk about some research she and I have done together and with, uh, actually led by my amazing doctoral student, Edward Chang. Will you wave, Edward? He should really be up here, but I have all the degrees and he'll have them soon. Um, so the story is actually that my husband is a professor too. He's in physics where there are even fewer women and minorities than in business schools, believe it or not. And he made an observation to me a few years ago. He said, I've noticed this funny thing that physics departments do. Uh, when they don't have any women or minorities, they frantically search to hire one, maybe two. And once they get one or two on their faculty roles, they sit back, relax, breathe a sigh of relief, and, and never think about it again. And he said, uh, I bet that that is something you could study. And I said, I bet it is. Actually, I called Dolly, and I said, let's study that. And, uh, and then Edward was actually starting his PhD about a week later, and I called him and I said, let's study this. And Edward quickly collected a data set uh, of the the, board, um, the boards of directors of publicly held companies in the US. And what he did was, I think, really a neat simulation. He took all of the people sitting on boards, and he said, let's ignore where they're sitting. Let's play musical chairs and see what the distribution should look like. How many boards should have zero women on them? One, two, three, four, and so on. If we just assigned seats at random, the people who are already on boards, so we're taking the pool as given. 
and you get a nice normal curve. And then he said, let's look at how that compares to what actually happens. And two really astounding things jump out of this data. One, there should be some boards without any women. That's how normal distributions work. We don't really see that. There's a, an enormous underrepresentation of boards with zero women. No one wants to have zero women. What are they doing, though? They're gaming it. So there's a huge overrepresentation of boards with exactly two women. Two is the social norm. That's the average number of women. And you see 45% more boards with exactly two women on them in Fortune 500 companies than you'd expect by chance. That's whoppingly statistically significant. Boards are aiming to hit the social norm, and then they quit. Um, so I guess the, the question I'll pose is, how do we move beyond that kind of diversity? Why is it that uh, we are so fixated on making sure we don't stand out, we don't look bad, but then when we feel comfortable, we just step back from it instead of continuing to pursue those goals? So, so that's the question I'll pose. That's a great way to segue, I think, into our next speaker. Um, and actually, I have to clap for that one, too. And my excuse is I study spiders, so I'm not from the business culture. Maybe you don't clap all the time. We do. <laughs> so I'm really happy to introduce Mr. Eric Singler, our third speaker. Mr. Singler holds an MBA in marketing research and marketing strategy from the Paris Institute of Political Studies. He's a managing director of BVA, a market research and consultancy group, as well as a managing director of PRS in vivo, which focuses on consumer goods market research. Mr. Singler is a pioneer on achieving behavioral change by utilizing behavioral economics and nudges, which I did look up to make sure I knew what it was, environmental changes that we can use to trigger shifts in cognition and decisions. Mr. Singler has successfully applied this technique to public policy, Fortune 500 companies, NGOs, and international organizations, in addition to which he was a founder of the BVA Nudge Unit, which successfully guided Emmanuel Macron's presidential campaign with the application of Nudge. Mr. Singler is the author of three books specializing in the application of Nudge, Nudge Marketing, Green Nudge, focusing on sustainability, and Nudge Management, focused on creating a better work environment. Presently, he is working with the United Nations with the He for She campaign for global gender equality. Mr. Singler. Okay. Hello, everybody. I have a very bad news for you at the BAT conference. As you have already understood, I am not an English native speaker. <laughs> and even if I come from the same continent as Iris Bonnet, we could have a very different accent. So sorry for this accent. I will try to do my best to be clear. If not, don't hesitate to ask me to say, oh, I don't understand anything about what you uh, share. But I hope I will be clear. I was two days ago at E4 She uh, meeting um, in New York uh, to share some ideas about applying behavioral economics for gender equality. Why I start with this? Because one year and a half ago, I have been contacted by E4 She, the lady in charge of fr in France of E4 She telling me, oh, we have heard about something which is called nudge, and we would like to know more about this. First, I was very surprised that if or she organization knows quite nothing. So they asked me to come to London with the if or she impact lab group with a lot of big people. Maybe you know that if or she it is 10 head of state. 10 president, global CEO of big companies, McKinsey, Accor, Danone, uh, Barclays, Vodafone, and so on, and 10 president of universities. And I was again amazed to hear that nobody knows something about behavioral science. They told me, they asked me, could you give us one advice? I told them, yes, it's very easy. I had the book, What Works, and I told them, read this book. <laughs> it will be a good start. <laughs> because 
you are at the level which is zero if you even don't know what is behavioral science and how it could be effective to change your behavior. So my message is really about promoting behavioral science. We think we have done uh, a lot to promote, to communicate about nudge. And in a lot of countries outside of the academic world, I am always surprised to see how few people know about it. And second, how few people use really concretely this knowledge to change behavior. So my work at the BVNG unit is mainly to work with big companies. I come from a background in marketing, marketing research. So what I try to do is to steal what you do, to learn about what you do, to combine this with my background in marketing, in ethno research, in creativity technique, in co-construction with consumer to create nudge, to change environment in very different sectors and areas. I have worked, for example, with Tony Estanguet. I think you don't know Tony Estanguet, but he's the head of the Paris 2024 um, Olympics uh, Committee uh, to nudge our candidacy. I have worked with Greenpeace, with WWF. I have accompanied Emmanuel Macron during all his campaign. We can nudge a campaign. Uh, how to encourage people to donate for you, how to encourage people to uh, become a member of En Marche with zero member of the, at the beginning of the campaign, but you can work also, it is a case with L'Oréal, to try to say what could we do to help um, our employee if they see something about sexual harassment to act. We could do, you know here, that we can do a lot, but again, there is a big gap to me between the academic world, all what we do, and the lack of use of this to make every day a better world. So I think we have a lot to do, this generation, to change things, to promote learning from great researchers and to make it applied in a lot of sectors for a better world, especially in gender equality. Thank you so much. Uh, there's a lot to think about uh, across the board. And maybe, should, should we actually start unusually with, with Katie's question? Do you want to repeat your question, Katie? And then we'll open it up for qu other questions. Sure. So, uh, I'm supposed to be using, sorry. <laughs> it's, it feels so natural to be up here just having a conversation. Um, so my question is, how do we move beyond a focus on diversity that's really about keeping up with the Joneses, just sort of checking the box, making sure that we won't stand out from our peers as looking particularly inept to actually investing in diversity and caring about it for its own sake and trying to achieve as much as we can to be better organizations. So how do we get there? So would someone like to take that one first and then we'll open it up? Okay. Um, what I can share is what we try to do, for example, for E4She, to change uh, behavior. A very small ID, but I like small IDs with big effect, is, for example, could we, if you are an organization or if you are a, a university, each time you have a new student or each time you have a new employee, per default, suggesting them to become a E4 she member in this case. Uh, the objective, maybe you know for E4 she is to reach 1 billion men supporting gender equality. And first step could be having these men with us and second to activate to help them to take action. And I think the onboarding process in a university or in a company, it would be very easy to add something per default to suggest, okay, we are a E4C champion, we are proud of this, 
maybe with a 30 second video, because we are emotional, so a 30 second video by a great messenger, for example, your CEO, mentioning, okay, maybe you could become like me, like our company, a he or she ambassador. And per default, I am quite sure Unilever is, for example, a company which is an he or she champion, which is supposed to be. Because even if Paul Poman, the CEO, is telling every day we are he or she, only 1% of Unilever employees men are E4C members because there is a lack of salience. So small ideas like during the onboarding process, could we suggest uh, per default uh, if you want? So I like very much all these type of small things which could change behavior um, for, in this case, gender equality. Thank you. Uh, Professor Chuck? Absolutely. Um, so one of the... Um, one of the ideas I talk about in my book is something I'm calling ordinary privilege. And I think Jivan earlier today talked about the discomfort with the word privilege and some people feel. Um, what I mean by ordinary privilege is if you think about that part of your identity that you have to think least about. So for example, I'm straight. I go months without thinking about the fact that I'm straight. Like it. I just don't have to think it. People say, what'd you do this weekend? I say, oh, my husband and I, blah, 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 and the kids, and blah, blah, blah. And I have pictures, and I put them up on Facebook, and I don't worry about who's going to see them and what their, what their sort of homophobia is going to be in reaction to my pictures. I can go through my life knowing that um, the headwinds and tailwinds that we heard about earlier, to use Debbie Irving's metaphor, I know that the, the world has tailwinds that support my straight identity, the world that I, tra I travel in. That part of my identity where I have tailwinds that I have to think least about it is also where I most likely have blind spots. I don't feel the tailwinds, right? Because when you, you know, when I go running, occasionally, <laughs> I go running very slowly. <laughs> you would speed walk past me, but, 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 Every now and then, if I have a good tailwind, I think I'm kind of rocking out there. And like, those eggs, they really got me going this morning. And then when you like make the loop to come back home, the U-turn, and now the wind is in your face, you feel what you didn't feel in the other direction. So your ordinary privilege, part of your identity that you think least about, where you have the tailwinds, is where someone else has headwinds, and you're least likely to see it. It is your blind spot. It also. The, what research shows from um, David Heckman, Steph Stephanie Johnson, and many others is that in those areas, the identity you have to think least about, your ordinary privilege, is also where you have surprising influence. If somebody tells a racist joke and a black person speaks up versus a white person speaking up, the black person is not viewed as having as legitimate a right to speak up. They're being entitled, they're being whiny, as opposed to the white person. In a career context, if a manager hires, if a white manager hires a white person, they take no hit for that. If a white person hires a black person, they take no hit for it. If a black person hires a black person, they take a hit for it. And we can extrapolate this to different groups in different social categories. So, ordinary privilege, part of my identity I think least about, where I most likely have blind spots because I only feel the tailwinds and not the headwinds, is also where I have surprising influence. This is where I can do more if I choose to notice those blind spots. So I think what we can each do is whatever the part of our identity is, and we heard some great, great examples this morning, it could be that you are a native speaker of the language spoken in your environment. It could be that you are straight in an environment where that is the norm. It could be that you are um, physically able to do things that uh, someone else might not be able to do. Whatever the part of your identity is that you think least about, in my case, I can list off like a dozen things off the top of my head that I never have to think about. Those are the places where I most likely can have influence. So this is interesting, a combination of involved allyship, conscious allyship, and then institutionalization of that allyship in the form of the onboarding procedures that make it clear that that is acceptable and even expected. So this is from the personal to the professional, um, and maybe these are some of the avenues. 
I don't know, Katie, if you wanted to comment. Right, solve my own problem. Um, <laughs> well, we're trying, so I'm gonna point at Edward again until he turns red and runs out, runs away. But um, we had we had one attempt that I'll say was a partial success. It was a little bit of a failure, but a partial success. We convinced a, a big international organization to let us run a 3,000 person field experiment with an intervention that we hoped might improve behaviors towards women and minorities. Um, it was a, an unconscious bias training, but also it talked about conscious bias and stereotypes and women don't ask and all of the um, best social science research that might make someone uh, think differently about how they treat members of underrepresented groups in their organization. And we were able to measure both attitudes after the training and also a number of behaviors up to three or four months post-intervention, including who you volunteer, or who you uh, invite to a mentoring lunch, who you nominate for awards for excellence, and how you behave when you receive an audit experiment email asking you to spend time with women in the organization. What we found was a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news. So the training did change attitudes robustly, and particularly the attitudes of groups that in the absence of intervention, showed the least support for women and minorities. So that's good news. Here's the bad news. It didn't move behavior very much, and when it did, it was actually only for the groups who you would have already expected to be aligned. So women changed their behavior a little bit, and minorities changed their behavior a little bit, and largely it caused them to lean in, if you will. So women actually started seeking out more mentoring from other women when they participated in the training. The same thing happened when we looked at minorities. So it seemed to alert people that they needed to seek help. And by the way, I think that's actually a great outcome. It wasn't what we were aiming for. We were aiming more for debiasing, And instead what we got was um, making people more proactive. But that was our best attempt. I think we have to keep working, trying to get organizations, as Iris mentioned, it's really hard to convince the lawyers to let you to collect let you collect this kind of data, do these kinds of randomized control trials. We fought for a month with the lawyers over changing, what, two paragraphs when we were sending this to a journal. So um, as many organizations as will open their doors, it's going to give us an opportunity to do more of this kind of work so that we can figure out what really moves the needle. Thank you. I think we should open it up to questions or comments from any of you then. Oh, it's going to pop up on the screen. Entirely. Okay, so that means that we can talk some more. Okay. Can I, can I just say that one of the things that we found helpful, uh, so I do do uh, new uh, academic director training. Uh, I also do onboarding, basically new faculty orientation. And particularly for the academic administrators, and this is something that would, that would factor into just about every sector, uh, concrete what they call potentially um, bias interrupter uh, mindsets, tools, and phrases have found to be, we found that to be incredibly helpful. Uh, chairs had the will to change things after seeing the data and after thinking about how bias could trickle into, for example, hiring decisions or assessment of yearly merit increases. They didn't have the tools in the context of a discussion with often senior faculty who have a lot of gravitas in their department how to redirect the conversation without calling out racism, sexism, homophobia. And so we actually started to use some of those tools that are available online um, from, again, this excellent social science research about how you redirect conversations. And I know I'm in a management school where there's entire schools of thought of that, but the thing is there's so many people who don't study that. And again, the idea that there are really good data on how we could do this, but we need to distill it into useful packages that we can then distribute to administrators of goodwill who we've shown the data and who are convinced there's an issue and want to change it. Because in the heat of the moment, if they haven't modeled it, if they haven't read it, if they haven't maybe done a workshop on it where they actually thought about what to say, they are going to be caught flat-footed and the process will continue as it always has. So that would be my suggestion. Colin? What's the question I'm answering? I'm sorry. Well, I. I I don't know if anyone else has had that experience of actually, I think uh, Eric has from his description, of actually talking about this in terms of toolkits, ah. that you make it easy for people who actually are convinced and want yeah. to do something. Uh, yeah. I think you have the answer. 
uh, in your question, easy. <laughs> it is the mantra of uh, Richard Taylor. If you want to change uh, behavior, make it easy. So how you could create a psychological environment or a physical environment which facilitate and encourage the new desired behavior you, you want people to adopt. And there is a big limitation to nudge, but to me, which is also a big strength. If you don't have the intent to adopt the new behavior, you will be not successful to encourage people to adopt this new behavior. So education is really about creating the uh, intention to adopt the behavior. And with nudge and behavioral economics, you could create a choice architecture which facilitate, uh, facilitate encourage with salience, with a lot of mechanism you know by heart, uh, to change behavior. And it is feasible. It is what we observe. We have created for the first time, a nudge building uh, in Paris uh, with Anne Hidalgo, which is about how we could encourage people to adopt eco-friendly behavior, how uh, we could create some uh, uh, friendliness within a building. We are accompanying now a big company for his headquarters, how to create a an office space which encourage cooperation, innovation. I think we can work on a lot of different areas with behavioral science uh, in mind. Thank you. I was so captivated by what you were talking about with the bias interrupters that I, I sort of missed the question, but I do understand now. And um, I think, so what's so interesting in what Mediana described is it's, it gives us a sense of what to do. And the tool, one of the tools that I have gotten a lot of value out of using, I didn't invent this tool, but I'd love to share it with you, is when to do those things. And it's something called the 20-60-20 rule. Um, Susan Anunzio, who's a change consultant I worked with in my pre-academic uh, years, uh, she uses the 20-60-20 rule to think about any cultural change. I mean, it could be like a new accounting system or a new way of you know, building your business. 20% of your people are like on board, ready to go, just stay out of their way. 20% of the people are never coming with you. <laughs> they are comfortably miserable. They are not adopting the new system. 60% of the people are in the middle. They're the movable middle, and they're not super engaged in the topic. They don't have strong opinions. They're not paying close attention, and they're not vocal on it. What we tend to do in our change efforts is pay a lot of attention to the 20 that's vocal and resistant, and very little attention to the 60 in the middle. Now, keep in mind, on different issues, I might be in the 20 on one issue and the 60 on the other and then the other 20 on another. We, we can all sort of float, depending on the issue. But when it comes to issues like diversity and inclusion, interrupting bias, we are spending a lot of time on this 20 and not enough time noticing the 60 in the middle. That 60 in the middle are the ones that are most swayed by our norms interventions. And what research also says is when people don't have deeply held views on a topic, they are most swayed by stories versus data. So the, the what to do and then the when to do it is don't waste too much time on the 20 or bring in your HR folks if we're doing real harm to people, but spend a lot of time on the 60 and using stories to move them towards the other 60. The, the first 60. Wow. Katie? I, I was thinking about this, and I had the most time to think. It's nice <laughs> to go third. Sorry. No? You didn't take my time. It was great. It was great, because I actually had no answer whatsoever initially. Um, but now I do. So <laughs> here's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking, actually, about something that Iris brought up, which is, uh, and, and also this is triggered by Eric's comments on how do we take nudges that work in one context and bring them to diversity. So one nudge that we know that's very effective is accountability, feeling visible and feeling like your actions are, are being scrutinized by others because we don't want to look bad. And again, this comes back to the theme of the work we did on corporate boards. Nobody wanted to be the board with zero women. Um, how can we use that as a tool to fight 
uh, inequality and to promote diversity. Well, uh, Iris, you talked about in the UK, now it's required that companies report the, the pay gap. Uh, in my university, a few years ago, the deans instituted a new rule, which was that we had to report on the demographics of every speaker we brought to a speaker uh, we brought to speaker series and all of the faculty candidates we interviewed and hired so now we're accountable to the deans every department chair has to send this list at the end of the year and it's not just the names you're literally meant to count how many of them were women how many of them were underrepresented minorities and how many were caucasian men and of course when this call went out at the beginning of the year it meant everybody was scrambling to th rethink, wait, did we actually think about these numbers at all when we were inviting candidates? That year, when that new policy went into place, my department doubled the number of women. We hired three women. Previously, we'd had three women in the whole department, and now we have six. So, uh, you know, whatever, that's an N of one. I'm an academic, but there's lots of evidence that accountability interventions work, and I like my, my single piece of evidence from my department as well. I think that's the kind of thing that brings this top of mind and makes it hard to hide from our mistakes. Excellent. And actually, that figures quite well into our first question, uh, or, or, well, one of our questions. Um, what's, what's the line between nudging? So nudging is slightly different, but this is also an in incentives or negative incentives for, for better behavior, right? Uh, what's the difference between those kinds of things, incentives, negative incentives, nudging, and manipulation? And do people worry about that? Yes, I think it is a classical question. You maybe know the books from Kassunstein, uh, The Ethics of Influence. And uh, during the last behavioral exchange conference in Sydney, the keynote from Cass was about uh, this, talking about what are the criteria we need to respect to be nudging for good and not what they call now sludge. Uh, uh, so it is about transparency, it is about being sure that the new desired behavior we want to encourage is a behavior which is good for the individual, for the community and for, for the planet. So to be sure of this, we have also to take care about who is in charge to decide what is a good behavior. We have also to be transparent about what we do, why we do it, to the nudgy. Uh, and so if we respect a certain number of rules, I think it is a difference between manipulation and nudging. But for sure, with the same understanding, the same knowledge, you can nudge for good or you can nudge for bad. And here, there is also regulation, there is also, uh, I think, responsibility for the, from, for the society to take care uh, of this. Thank you. Other responses to that? I think one of the things that the leaders of the nudge movement have helpfully talked about is the importance of transparency as a means of making sure that we are nudging and not manipulating. It feels much more like manipulation when uh, nudges are sort of stealthily inserted into our lives and with a goal of promoting a certain behavior and there's no mention made. But when, for instance, a dean very explicitly says, we are trying to promote more diversity in our faculty and one of the things we've recognized is that a way to do that is to hold you accountable for the diversity of the candidates you look at for jobs and the diversity of the people you bring in for your seminar speakers. That doesn't feel like manipulation. It's pretty transparent what they're doing. Um, so I think transparency is a big part of the answer. And, and it's hard to feel manipulated when you know exactly what the purpose of the nudge is. You still have free choice. And so that transparency, I think, really guards against this issue. I, I might also argue that I think people have been using nudging for quite a long time. There's people who intuitively in understand how to nudge. Uh, you might call them our leaders, uh, for example. Uh, there's people who intuitively understand these things and have leveraged it over time. It's just now that it's available to more people if they actually read the literature. Uh, so what are the most effective behavioral interventions that will help us move past just changing people's minds? Anyone? 
I think now, uh, from the BIT, for example, there are so many interventions we know um, are very uh, effective. I think it is important each time um, not to apply systematically the same idea, but to understand the context, to understand why people are not in the desired behavior, and based on this, activate some driver of influence. We know from science are powerful with specific uh, ideas. Default option, once again, from Cass Sunstein, is the gold medal of the uh, effectiveness of what we can uh, do. Uh, after there are a lot of, uh, I, I like very much uh, easiness. Uh, when we have changed on the Emmanuel Macron website during the campaign, just uh, the way we ask, we request people to become a member, we change one sentence saying, okay, it's in three minutes, it is free, and it is simple. From one day to the other day, plus 55% of transformation rate among visitors to uh, member. Just because rather than reading a long text explaining why you should uh, become a member of En Marche, a very short sentence, an image with Emmanuel Macron like this, and yeah, support Emmanuel Macron, it's simple, three minutes, and it's free. So easiness is something for me which is very effective. Mm -hmm. Katie, you're yeah. uh, This just builds on what Eric said, but changing defaults is an incredibly powerful uh, intervention. So simply changing, uh, you know, if if in the case of Katie's uh, department and their their speaker series, if the default was we're going to only invite women and minorities, and I, and I recognize that's fraught with all sorts of uh, problems, that statement, but imagine if they said that, unless there's a compelling reason to invite someone else, versus there's an unspoken default, nobody's intending it, but that the speakers are gonna be white male because they're the ones that come furthest to mind, quickest to mind, they're the ones that are most associated with brilliance, according to the studies we know that, that uh, equate men and brilliance, they're the ones that are cited the most, they're the ones that are more tenured the most, and therefore they are gonna be the ones that are most salient in our minds. So changing the default is a powerful intervention. And then we've heard a lot of compelling evidence today about the power of changing norms. It is not easy to change norms, but it is easier to change norms than it is to change minds. And uh, surprisingly, um, it's amazing if you picture, you know, the wedding where the band starts playing and nobody goes on the dance floor until one person goes on the dance floor and then everybody's on the dance floor. It just took that one person to like boogie out there and kind of get laughed at a little bit. That that first mover effect of norm changing is really important. Simply having the, f the first is, is powerful. I would go, you know, I think Iris spoke about some of the most powerful strategies. I would go with blind evaluation as an incredibly powerful one. The orchestra evidence, of course, uh, I, was, I was dismayed by your results, Iris, of the study where you showed that even with the blind evaluation of an algorithm, a person still makes a biased judgment, but that even speaks more strongly in some sense for the truly blind evaluation, right? You, you never unblind that. The algorithm maybe is even the one that's making the judgment and the human isn't allowed to tweak it more than a, a tiny bit. Um, there's some research by uh, colleagues of mine, Berkeley Dietvorst, who is a, a PhD student um, at Wharton and is now a professor at Chicago Booth, uh, Cade Massey and Joe Simmons on people's aversion to using algorithms for judgment, which is a challenge if you wanted to do something like blind evaluation or evaluation by algorithm. But one of the things they've found is if you let people tweak the judgment of the algorithm even a tiny bit, just fractionally, uh, all of a sudden the algorithm is palatable. So whether you let them adjust an algorithm that's giving you a forecast of this person's performance, 10%, 5%, or 2%, any of those amounts, still all of a sudden people will adopt an algorithm. And so if we maybe just let people tweak it only a tiny bit, not enough to induce too much bias, maybe we could combine your algorithmic um, scoring of code quality with humans and make it palatable and unbiased. And one thing to that, and and um, 
I had sort of been so sold by the research that Katie's described and the algorithms and, you know, we were, were letting such an opportunity go by by not being more receptive to algorithms. And then I read a book called Weapons of Math Destructions, M-A-T-H, by Kathy O'Neill, in which case um, she has a PhD, I think, in math and has, has been um, like the chief quant person at hedge funds. And then she moved over to... Um, support social justice movements. And so what she did was analyze the algorithms, the key algorithms that drive a lot of key sectors, everything from hiring to admissions, to mortgage um, applications, uh, to education, to teacher assessment. So she each chapter is like a different domain, and let's say there's eight chapters. And in every single chapter and domain, she shows how the algorithm, which was written by human beings who are biased, however consciously or unconsciously, and how those assumptions that are built into the algorithm are actually creating biased algorithmic outcomes. So while the algorithms may be a resource for us, they, we cannot trust them to be bias-free without being super vigilant about what assumptions fed them. And the, of course, the story on that one is there is uh, several years ago where AIs wouldn't recognize this as a female face. That's right. Right. That's so. right. Or when I go <laughs> to wash my hands, it never, the thing so never, never goes on for my hands. I, I like have to dance. And <laughs> it does not recognize me on the motion detector. Um, yes, uh, our, our problems definitely. <laughs> More later. To Dolly's point about using your ordinary privilege, how does this apply to addressing workplace harassment issues? sexual harassment and workplace bullying. Who has that privilege and who can use it and how do you use it? That's a huge question for our last three minutes. I mean, I hate to point fingers at the men, but <laughs> they could help. It really would help to hear more men talking about this issue. I mean, it's, I think as women, every text, every email, every social media feed I have right now is somehow tied to this issue. That's not true with every man in my life. Anyone else? We, we won't put you on the spot, Eric. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I would say also as a, as a, as a leader, um, being open to the conversations even when the person doesn't want to report. I've found um, repeatedly that women have come into my office and just felt relieved to unburden themselves of this information and to be told that it wasn't their fault. It all sounds tr trivial and hackneyed and it's just like a textbook, but in fact, it does help people to hear the words from someone who's made it through some of those situations, that in fact, it is not your fault. In fact, if I can help, I will. In fact, you can always come and talk to me about it if you need to, and I will try to help you get out of those situations. One challenge we have in American universities is we are obligated to report it once they tell us. I don't know if that's true here. At U of T, we have a distinction between disclosure and reporting. So unless there's a risk of imminent violence, so I'm talking about not violence but harassment okay. or bullying, unless there's a risk of violence or risk or to individuals who are underage, say, we can take a disclosure and give them the options for reporting, but they don't have to report and we don't have to report. You know, I'm going to check the nuance on ours. Thank you. I think we're nearing the end of our time. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. I feel really do feel privileged to be thank on this you. stage with you. And your work is so important. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another Gate Audio production podcast. To continue these conversations, Gate will collaborate with Rotman's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab to host a new conference called Gender Analytics Possibilities, or the GAP Conference, on April 27, 2023. At the GAP Conference, you'll join more than 25 speakers and hundreds of participants to explore how to use inclusive analytics to generate innovative products, services, and policies. We'll be talking about topics such as decolonizing data and design, inclusive product and service design, new trends in financial services, creating inclusive contracts and legal practice, and revolutionizing sports analytics. Check out thegapconference.com for more information. That's thegapconference.com. Stay tuned for more Gate Audio episodes.